Welcome to Word from the Herd, produced and brought to you by the Kimmel Foundation for Recovering Leadership. Welcome to Word from the Herd. I'm your host, Thomas Hill, and I'm really excited today because I'm in the studio with Dr. Nathan Miller, who is a good friend of mine. But in spite of being a good friend of mine, he's also very well known. He's an author, a two-time TEDx speaker, the CEO of Strata Leadership. And one of Dr. Miller's interesting facts is he's literally been all over the world uh, teaching and learning. He has studied or taught in Australia, Belize, China, England, Ghana, Israel, Jordan, Mexico, Russia, Rwanda. I, I could go on and on. Very passionate about developing future leaders. He's the co-founder of the Presidential Leadership Institute in collaboration with the Eisenhower Presidential Library and Museum, and he's also an adjunct professor for graduate programs at both York College and OBU, and he's the chairperson of the Oklahoma Business Ethics Consortium. Dr. Miller, welcome to A Word from the Herd. Thank you, Thomas, for the invitation, and I'm looking forward to a great conversation with you. So now, doctor, that always worries me a little bit. Um, you're not the medical doctor. You're the degree doctor. Yes, and I'm not one of the helpful doctors. <laughs> in fact, you have a doctorate in education and organizational leadership from Pepperdine. You have two master's and a bachelor's degree, so ostensibly overeducated. Well, I am uh, really an overachiever on how much uh, debt I can get into on student loans. Oh, excellent, excellent. So my question is, do I have to keep referring to you as doctor, or would you be okay with me calling you Nathan? I would prefer doctor. Okay, all right. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, of course, uh, please, is please call me Nathan. <laughs> so Nathan, one of the first things I always like to ask our guests uh, is a little off topic, but it's always fun to hear their stories. Tell me about the worst job you ever had. You know, there, there's two different... I knew that you are going to ask that question because I've been enjoying listening to the podcasts already, but I've really wrestled with that because the, the first job I had was when I was 14 years old. I was the janitor, one of the janitors, at the mall where I grew up in Mobile, Alabama. And so I wore the red shirt with my um, name on the patch and cleaned the mall from 6 o'clock in the morning until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And that is not a great job for you as a teenager. You know, seeing everybody at the mall when you're there uh, working and cleaning up. But I really enjoyed that job. And so some would say that's the worst job because you got paid the least and it was all that. But I actually liked that job. And then I became the janitor at the high school I attended, which is also great for popularity and everything else. <laughs> but I would say that the worst jobs that I've had were the ones where I felt like I was not in alignment with what uh, perhaps the leadership wanted, or maybe they did not know what to do with you. And, and I, I found that when I'm in a job where I, I'm trying to solve a problem where other people didn't think it was a problem, those were the jobs that were the worst for me because doing a good job was a problem and not doing a good job was a problem. And so I would say the worst jobs were the ones where you weren't a good fit. That's outstanding. I uh, have been, it's been interesting listening to the leaders that have been on the show talk about uh, the worst jobs they've had. Almost to a person, they started out in some low-paying, low-appreciated job, but got a lot out of the experience. And we've kind of come to the conclusion that 
young leaders, aspiring leaders, need to appreciate some of the things that they will have to go to be, go through because it ends up making us who we are. So that's outstanding. So Nathan, you uh, one of the things that I love about you, one of the things I think everybody loves about you, you are a storyteller. I mean, that's kind of one of the things you do. In fact, your recent book, uh, Sleeping Giants, Authentic Stories and Insights for Building a Life that Matters, is really just a series of stories that you have heard and collected in all of the different things you've done and all the places you've gone. So tell me a little bit about the advantages of communicating through narrative or through stories. Um, maybe give us some examples of some, of some times that that's been really effective for you. But, but ultimately, why should leaders take that on as something that they use for their communication? I believe that people are uh, wired for stories. They respond differently to stories than they do most things. The research behind it is very compelling uh, of what happens when you take brain scans of two people and one person starts to tell a story. The other person's brain begins to actually sync with the person that's telling the story. They begin to feel the emotion in a very different way. And what's happening is when you are uh, giving a, a list, here's you know, this business meeting, we've got one, two, three, there are two parts of the brain that light up, the, the Broca and the Wernicke, really taking information in and then trying to understand what to say in return, but it's not really occupying most of the brain. When someone is telling a story, it lights up seven parts of the brain, and you begin to find yourself in the story it's called transportation. And so it's a lot like you are in a movie theater and you're watching a movie and, and all of a sudden there's this big moment and you might fee, be filled with emotion. You might be scared, you might be whatever. Well, you know that what's happening on the screen isn't real, but your brain has transported to this different place, this different um, experience. And for me with storytelling, I never meant to be a storyteller. I was just trying to connect with people and I was working at a factory, and I was trying to get across some ideas, and it was just not working. And this was a group of great people, but it was about, I don't know, probably 130 people crammed into a room that probably should have been seated, seating 90 people. I, I could literally reach out and touch several people, and it was not working. And so I, I said, um, let's, let's take a break. And we, we took a break, and I'm there with a, a colleague, and I said, I this is not working. And, and he did not say, uh, no, it really is. You're doing fine. He said, I see that. And he said, um, he said, just tell a story. Just talk about your life. He said, talk about stuff they can, they can relate with. Talk about your dad, uh, football, stuff like that, because dad was a football coach. And I went back in and I started talking about some of those things. And I noticed that people responded differently. Then over time, I noticed that if I tell a story well, People are not thinking about my story, they're thinking about their story. So the story is not the point as much as it is the story is the on-ramp for people to be able to engage more deeply. Two things that I heard you say that I, that I, I find really interesting. First of all, you said you didn't intend to become a storyteller. I often wonder, as leaders, we tend to be fairly forward-thinking. We tend to plan out our future. We know where we want to go. And often we do that in spite of the evidence in front of us that it's not working. But you, had, you had an experience where doing what you had planned to do was not working. 
and you were willing to pivot and shift and do something different, which is so critical for success in leadership. But so many leaders don't do that. They continue to grind away at the things that they have predetermined. This is what my leadership is going to be like, or this is what's going to happen. And certainly we're experiencing a time now uh, with the COVID crisis and economic crisis and unrest. There's lots and lots of situations where just continuing to do more of or work harder at what we've done before is not going to keep working. It's not going to work. As leaders, we've got to be able to go, what's, what's happening here is not working. We need to pivot. And then fascinated by, and I, you gave us a, a little tiny glimpse. I know you've done an enormous amount of study and research into what happens in people's brains when we're communicating, when we're talking, and, and the whole concept of how our brains develop. And you and I have actually had several um, interesting and, and at times heated discussions about uh, nature versus nurture. And for our listeners, Nathan is convinced that I was not born to be an engineer. I am convinced that I was born to be an engineer. So we'll, we'll agree to disagree on that. So an engineer has a very strong opinion. That's interesting. I've <laughs> never seen that before. I know, right? It's a, I'm a, I am an abnormally, or a, yeah, I'm not normal. But, but what I find interesting is that um, that this work, the, the study that you've done and the things that you have, have put together about the brain um, can be so useful for leaders because really at the end of the day, a leader isn't doing the work. They are getting other people to come on board with a vision. And if we don't understand how people are processing the information we're giving them, then we may be speaking all kinds of things. We'd be communicating all the time, but if we're missing the people that we're trying to lead, then we haven't accomplished our, our job. So it's, it's very important that we, that we do that. Well, I noticed that um, we were doing some um, leadership development programs, and we would have people to introduce themselves and tell a little bit about themselves and, and all this. And I, I was watching the people who were listening to people introduce themselves. And it dawned on me one day that the people in the room who were the leaders were the most engaged listening to the stories of the people who were introducing themselves. And I began watching that. And then the next time we had another event like that, I watched it again and watched it again. And it became clearer and clearer to me that leaders are always deeply interested in the stories of other people. Because if I'm going to be an effective leader and you're giving me insights into who you are and how you want to thrive, how you want to succeed, you're letting me into uh, your story. You telling me what, what you're hoping for, where you, you've been, where you want to go. That allows me to calibrate for you. And one of the things you'll find about great leaders is that the leadership approach that they take is tailored for the people that they're trying to lead. So if I'm looking at great coaches, a great coach does not coach every player the same, or they're going to lose a lot of games. But I can't lead people well that I don't know well. And if I'm not listening, I don't know their story. If I'm not asking, I don't know their story. And so one of the things that you find with leaders is over time, they begin collecting those stories of people who go through these types of challenges. They're probably thinking this. And people who've been through these types of things are probably thinking this. And they may not know the actual group that they're speaking to deeply, but they know people well enough to imagine what it would be like to be in those shoes. So when we go through something like COVID-19, the leaders that are most effective are imagining what it must be like to be at home right now trying to raise kids while also trying to do work remotely and, and on and on. That ability to think about where other people are coming from is at the heart of being able to lead effectively. 
That is that is outstanding. It seems to me that that a lot of leaders, you, you keep saying great leaders, so you're obviously differentiating between people who are just have positional authority and people who are actually doing a good job at serving the people that, that, that they're there to serve. So you keep saying great leaders. A lot of leaders that I've experienced um, don't. They're, they don't learn about their people. They're not necessarily interested. They're predominantly interested in the position that they're in and accomplishing what they think they've been, been set there to accomplish. And you know that leads me to the, the next thing I want to talk to you about. Um, I've heard you say a number of times that uh, leaders often don't believe that they're good at what they do, mm-hmm. that, that leaders often have a crisis of self-doubt or, or they just are not sure of themselves. And knowing that about ourselves and knowing that that's, that's how we feel, um, I'd like you to, to address two things maybe. One is what can a leader do about that? What are some things that leaders can do to, uh, to, to embolden themselves in that respect? And then also knowing that about ourselves and assuming that other people feel the same way, how would you suggest that leaders encourage the people around them knowing that that's probably a common human trait? You know, I was watching that show with Jerry Seinfeld and it's uh, comedians and cars getting coffee. And it's a pretty straightforward idea. He hangs out with his friends. They record it while they drink coffee and he gets paid. It's a pretty good deal for him. But he was talking about the motive behind the show and it was that he felt at home with other stand-up comedians, that there is only a small number of people who really understand what that's even like, to write a joke, to make people laugh, to do the whole thing. And there is this grouping of people that he just feels at home with. He doesn't have to translate things. I feel that way with leaders. But I found hanging out with leaders is that leaders struggle with, uh, not, not there are some leaders who struggle with, they, they have, uh, too high of a view of themselves. But that is not what I found to be the common challenge. The most common, by far, the challenge that I see is that they don't think highly enough of themselves for this reason. Leaders are constantly evaluating what is, what could be, what is, what could be. And they're strengthening that critical thinking muscle. And I joke about it. You can always tell if someone's a leader, if they go on vacation, for example, you go on vacation, you've gone to Disney, you've had a great day at Disney, it's the end of the night and they're doing the fireworks and you're walking back to the car, to the tram, whatever, and you say to your, your, your spouse, that was great. And let's say it's me and my wife and my wife says, that was great. She said, what did you think about it? What did you think of the day? And you can always tell if someone's a leader when they respond to a question like that one. Because I find that leaders will say, well, and they start off with that, which is why people don't like to hang out with leaders typically, but they start (laughs) off with that. Well, you know, it was great, but you know what they could have done? And they start talking about how, you know, if they could have done this, this, and this. And for a leader, this does not mean they're unhappy. They had a, they really did have a great experience, but they're seeing it as it is and as it could be, as it is and as it could be. And so they do the same thing with their own lives. As they become better leaders, more effective leaders, they're also at the same time seeing more clearly what they're not. And so the the phrase that has become a pretty popular phrase lately is the phrase or the term imposter syndrome. And that's where a lot of leaders find themselves of if they knew how insecure I was, why would they follow me? If they knew, and they have this moment. And I would say, by far, that is the greatest um, common theme 
that I hear among leaders. And that's one of the reasons why I feel at home with them. Because I think that leaders, when they are surrounded by other leaders and they can be transparent, they find that all of them are just doing the best they can in the situation that they're in. So the thing that I would say that would be helpful, hopefully, I ask leaders to calibrate for the situation that they're in. So if I said to you, tell me about the ideal version of you, Thomas, right now. Not, not, not the best version of you in the past or what you had been, but right now in the middle of COVID-19 with significant challenges facing the uh, energy sector, you've got all this going on. Tell me about the ideal version of you now. How does the CEO of this company lead a meeting now? How does the CEO of this company develop strategy now? How do I greet people in the hallway now? Because there's so much on your mind. And you might say, well, the ideal version of me would be, um, you know, aware. I would be attentive in meetings. I would do whatever. And I say that because I'm not asking you who you would like to be given the perfect circumstances. I'm saying a person who is running hard, who is fatigued, might need to give themselves a little bit more grace because uh, perfection is not available and it's not even needed. What people are looking for is um, that, that you are committed to them and committed to the idea that you're willing to make hard choices. They do not believe and do not expect you to be perfect. That's great. So as a leader, what would you, or, you know, to our audience, what would you tell the leaders to do? What are some things that they can do to then pass that encouragement on to the people that they're leading? Because I'm sure that imposter syndrome affects people at all different levels of an organization. People in, in positions, you know, in other positions are often probably thinking, hey, I'm not sure I belong here. One is I would say you have to have a short memory of um, you made the best decision you could in a crisis. That was all you knew to do. You made that decision and uh, not dwell on it. When people go through traumatizing events like what we're going through right now, about one third, a little bit less, will struggle with post-traumatic stress disorder after this. They, they uh, will struggle and need some, uh, need some help. About 60% uh, of people, a little bit more, will actually go through a traumatizing event like what we're going through right now and experience post-traumatic growth and they will say, I, I wish we had not gone through this, but I am stronger because we did. But it means that I'm not dwelling on things I can't fix. I'm dwelling on uh, where I am and where I want to go in the future. That would be, would be part of it. But the other thing is to have a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. I speak about this a lot. It's uh, a lot of the work of Carol Dweck, who works at Stanford. You can find her stuff online. And some of the other stuff about the ideal self, and the positive and negative emotional attractors is work from Richard Boyatzis. You can also find his work online. But when I look at the growth mindset, it is recognizing that uh, failure, uh, not experiencing the success that you'd hoped for, can be redeemed when it is looked at as, this is the price that I have to pay to get better. This didn't work, what's next? This didn't work, what's next? That growth mindset would say that the pathway to success, the pathway to mastery, is through um, hardship. It's through uh, failure. It's through um, 
you know, experiencing that moment where you don't know what to do. And so going through that would be to say, what did you learn from it? How do I redeem it? And so we learned this time that treating people that way, it doesn't work. So you, you, you snapped at somebody, you yelled at somebody in the meeting, and you found that that was not who you wanted to be. What do you do? You ask for forgiveness. You say, I, I'm sorry about that. And you stop doing it that way because you learned. But you've got to have the openness to say, I'm learning from this versus that's just who I am. So when I, say, when I hear leaders say, that's just who I am, they, they don't understand, that's just who I am. That is a classic indicator of a fixed mindset. And those kinds of people tend to break because they're not moldable. And that idea of having the growth mindset means I'm not brittle. You messed it up. Welcome to the big leagues. I do not know leaders who are doing great things who don't have stories that they wish they didn't have in their memories about things that they had said, done, whatever. Welcome to the big leagues. People always say, man, I, we got to have more character. People talk about care. I'm, I'm a huge fan of character. But here's the deal. Here's the secret about character. Character is the byproduct of pain. And so when people go through a time of suffering, when they cannot remove the suffering, that's what's happening to America right now. We're suffering. We can't remove this thing. Well, that suffering produces perseverance. And that perseverance produces character. And that character produces hope. Now, this is a biblical theme, an old theme. And I find in corporate environments, it is an incredible fit. So if I look at the suffering as the path to perseverance and the path to character, well, that is a huge step forward. But here's the thing. Character is not the end goal. The end goal is hope. And character provides the pathway to it. Oh, man. You know, uh, you know my story. And uh, I've got a lot of pain. I got the opportunity to go through a lot of pain. A lot of it I chose, right? A lot of it were the decisions that I made. But I remember early in my leadership, I, I said some really idiotic things. And, and when you said, when you hear leaders say, that's just the way I am, I used to tell people that I led that um, they wouldn't hear from me much, that I wasn't the kind of person to darken their doorway too often because I've just figured, you know, give people a job and they know what they're supposed to be doing and let them do it. But I reminded them that if they screwed something up, that's when they would hear from me. And can you imagine how horrible that is to tell somebody? Basically, what I'm doing is I'm warning them, and if I'm paying any attention to them, I'm unhappy with them, mm -hmm. which is exactly the opposite of what we should be doing. Great example. But I want to I jump in on that because it's a great example that people listening right now will have their version of that story. Great example of a story, by the way. But that moment right there, you're filled with a sense of shame, grief, Sorrow of, I wish I hadn't done it that way. Perfect. That means you're growing. And you did the best that you could at that time with what you knew. That's all you had. So let's move on. But if you, there's a thing that we say at Strata. If we're not embarrassed by the programs that we do three years from now, we're doing it wrong. That we want to be able to look back at the pictures of what we did three years ago, six years ago, nine years ago, and just have that hand, uh, that, you know, the, the head in the, the palm of your hand kind of moment of what in the world are we thinking? Because that is an indicator of the growth. So that pain that you feel is ironically um, growth pains. That's great. Okay, so speaking of growth pains and speaking of, I and mean, we've talked a lot of, through a lot of things here, 
talked about the imposter syndrome and how leaders feel and the fact that we often are, are you know, not certain of ourselves and confused. There is a lot of pain associated with just doing life, but it's even it's magnified a lot of times when you're a leader. Um, I know a lot of leaders, I've, I've experienced uh, interacting with a lot of leaders who once I gained their trust and, and we felt comfortable talking with each other, I find that they are not okay. Um, in some cases, they're at the point of desperation. Now, that would not be apparent to anybody else, right? They look great on the outside. And that certainly was my story, right? Right before my collapse, I looked fine to everybody, um, had everything, it looked successful. I was not. I was, I was disintegrating. And so leaders get where they think they want to be. They've accomplished everything that they want. And then they find that it's not fulfilling. They're not satisfied. It doesn't mean anything to them. It's not what they thought it would be. Um, what are some of, so for, for younger leaders or leaders who haven't, you know, it hadn't gotten that bad, what are some things that we need to be looking for in our lives and in our own leadership? And maybe what are some things that we could be looking for in the people around us so that we could maybe help them? And how would we do that? Talk to us a little bit about that. I think part of the, the challenge of uh, life for leaders is that they tend to become more isolated. That doesn't mean that they aren't surrounded by people and that they don't have uh, friends at work, but it does mean that there are a certain set of questions that only they have to contemplate. And I remember one time someone saying, you know, if you are the leader uh, and, it, and you're lonely at the top, then you're not really a good leader because you shouldn't be there by yourself. And I think that is a um, well-intentioned but hurtful statement because the reality is there are some things that leaders have to do that there's, that, that is uh, unique to the, the role that they play, where they have to make choices that they don't like either. And I, I look at that, and I think that's where the isolation often comes into play. And so, one, I would say uh, the network of people in your life has to be deliberate and intentional. That if you're doing life alone, uh, you are not... Um, the, the crisis is not actually, in my opinion, optional. It's, um, it may be minimized, but there's going to be a time in life when you are overwhelmed and you're going to need people in your life that love you enough to uh, walk with you through it. And so that intentionality of uh, engaging, uh, we have programs at Strata. And I'm not even really trying to promote that as much as I'm saying there has to be places where there have to be places where you are interacting with other people who don't need your stuff, who uh, don't have to agree with you, who uh, are impressed by you know, your success, but they're successful, too, and they don't care that kind of relationship becomes more valuable as you go farther. And so one, as I would say, you have to have a community. And that community piece is really important because a lot of leaders feel it's like being the mayor of the town. When they go to Walmart, they're still the mayor of the town. They can't take that hat off. And as a leader, that becomes part of that. That's why I like to gather leaders together because when you have a group of leaders together, they're not threatened by each other. They feel at home. So finding that community, and if you can't find it, create it. I found early in my career I could not find that community. And so I realized the only way I'm going to have it is if I'm going to create it. So I literally made a list of 20 people I thought would uh, I wanted to do life with and began uh, calling them and saying, hey, why don't we get together once a year at this retreat? Let's do this thing. And that I, I had to create it because I couldn't find it and I needed it. So one is create community. Another thing that I would say along the way is um, you know, getting feedback. Um, whether it be self-assessment or others, 
what happens is that um, on that continuum of stress in your life, the stress overload begins to push us away from um, health. So if you look at that bell curve, if the top of the bell curve is peak performance, that's where you want to be. Peak performance, I, I'm at the ideal uh, of who I want to be. Once I get past that peak performance and the stress overload begins to push, there are very distinct uh, stages I'll go through. The first one is fatigue. Then it goes to exhaustion. Then it goes down to panic, anxiety, and anger. It's a grouping. Panic, anxiety, and anger. Then the final one is burnout and breakdown. So if I'm looking at this, what will happen with a lot of hardworking leaders is that they will look at fatigue and exhaustion as a normal way of doing life. And so the margins are much thinner. Then they drop into panic, anxiety, and anger. They wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning with an anxiety attack and don't know why. Now, if you've ever had an anxiety attack, you will never struggle with empathy about people with anxiety because it will get your full attention. But as a leader, you find yourself in that spot and there's no place to go. There's no oasis. So I would be saying, look at what's happening in my life and I've got to commit. This is a big one. I've got to commit to being at peak performance. It's not a luxury item. It is not something for someone else. It is my obligation to my team to function at peak performance. During COVID, I've gained uh, a few pounds uh, because of stress and because of just um, working from home. I had longer hours. Our company went through some really challenging times as well. So I've gained uh, about 15 pounds over the last six months, and I don't like it. Because if you said to me, what's my ideal weight? I can give you one. And if you say, well, what do you weigh right now? I'm not there. Here's the problem with that. As a leader, I'm committed to being at game shape, so to speak, for my team, physically, emotionally, spiritually. So I have to recalibrate. The pace that I'm on currently takes me off of peak performance, and that sets off massive alarms. We've got a problem. Because if I don't, then I start doing coping mechanisms. The overeating, staying up late, watching uh, whatever game or whatever on TV because I can't find my way to relaxation. It's the, the, the things that undermine our confidence and our ability to be rested and focused and all that. Now, I find that in that, if you're looking at what you ought to do, you're probably not going to get there. If you look at what you are forced to do, you're probably not going to get there. Ultimately, as a leader, you have to decide who do you want to be? And if I said, what's the ideal version of Thomas? I think you are an amazing writer. If people haven't read the Monday Musings, they need to. They are really well done. And I look at that and I think that is Thomas giving me the ideal version of how he would like to be. When I read your book, you're giving me a glimpse into the ideal version of how you would like to lead. When you were doing these podcasts, you are convening people for the purpose of asking that question. Now, when I tell you this is what I want to do, then I have a very different feeling. We moved into a new house on Friday just a few days ago because uh, I had one area of my life that was not disrupted, so I thought we probably should just go ahead and move right now. You know, <laughs> of what a, This was a horrible idea. So we moved in, and we're all stressed out because we're living out of boxes and everything else. Well, I ended up having about two and a half, three hours in the middle of the day that I wasn't expecting. A meeting had been canceled, and I had time. 
And I knew that my wife was um, stressed out because of living out of boxes. And I gathered the kids together. I have two daughters, and I gathered uh, the team, and I said, hey, let's surprise your mom. She won't expect this. So I said, let's take, the, I'll take my, my iPhone, and I said, okay, 30-minute uh, alarm. Let's jump up. Let's make this happen. Let's clean the living room so that when she walks in, she at least has one room that's right. And the kids, uh, one of them jumped out, the other one couldn't do a lot. She had to go to a dentist appointment. But uh, the one got up and we started cleaning. And the 30-minute mark happened and the alarm went off and we kept working. And then we were close enough to having the room right that we kept working. And then we got the room right. And then it was this matter of like an unveiling because we had identified what we wanted. And we had uh, chosen a course based upon the desire to see it come to life. It wasn't what we had to do. It wasn't what we ought to do necessarily. It was what we wanted to do. And to bring that into alignment. I think that's what you're doing right now with this podcast. And I think it's one of the reasons why uh, I'm, it's an honor to be a part of it. Well, thank you. You know, you, when you talk about being at peak performance and that being back on the scale from being exhausted and worn out. So many leaders live, you said, so many leaders live in the exhausted, worn out. I used to think that that was what it took to be successful as a leader, is that the price you paid was being exhausted and tired and and at some level panicked. And it took, you know, almost losing everything and going into recovery to realize that I owe it to the people that I serve to not be exhausted and worn out. And that means sometimes I have to say, I'm not being, I won't be there today. I, th- today is the day I'm going to go take care of myself. Um, and then you talked about uh, the, the community that we want to be a part of. And you kind of alluded to a, a group of leaders uh, that, that you gathered. I, I'm blessed to be a part of that group. And once a year, we go off someplace uh, to a national park. It's beautiful, and we just enjoy the scenery, but we also get real honest with each other. And, and that's the kind of thing that leaders can, you know, you did it. Any leader that's listening to this can create something, some, some safe space. And then I would just pitch also, I've said this lots and lots of times, I think everybody should be, everybody should go to rehab. Most people can't do that. But at the very least, I think most people need to be in therapy. And, and that's a, a safe place where we can recharge and, and kind of reevaluate. And you also talked about recalibrating. That's something that I do in therapy. And then I've got a therapist and a spiritual advisor and a executive coach. And, and so I would recommend to the leaders that are listening that there are lots of ways that they can get these things that they need and to acknowledge that we don't have to be, the, the needle doesn't have to be in the red. You know, I have a wonderful car. I love driving my car. It's got a red place on the tack. And the idea is not that the needle's in the red. That's a warning. Don't go that far. The, the car works much better below that line. And, and so many of us are in the red. We, we just have a couple of minutes. I want to ask you one last thing. If you had, and I know this is a really dangerous thing to ask you um, to do anything in one or two sentences, but I'm going to ask you, if you just had a, a, a sentence or two that you could say to emerging leaders, uh, a word of advice, what would that advice be? Love people. And I don't use that word lightly, but I do not know how people will be able to stay engaged at the level that they need to be engaged at, how they will give the feedback they need to give, how they will pour into somebody else unless they choose to love them. And I, uh, the word love is one that makes me uncomfortable even saying it right now. But if you're going to lead, 
love the people that you're leading because uh, you're not going to impress them into doing something. You're not going to entertain them into doing something. The only thing that I think that people have that is powerful enough to overcome so much of the cynicism of our time is that they feel that um, their leaders love them. And I think that is um, something we should call people to. Amen. I love that. Nathan, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been really, really enlightening and really encouraging. I would recommend uh, to everybody that's listening that they check out your new book, Sleeping Giants. Uh, They can also listen to you weekly on your podcast, The Strata Leadership Show. And if they want to get any more information about Strata or the various things that Nathan's involved in, you can look him up at strataleadership.com. There's all kinds of resources and things available there for leaders. Again, Nathan, thank you so much. Thank you. This has been Word from the Herd. We really appreciate you spending time with us today, and we hope that we'll see you again next week. Thank you for joining us today on Word from the Herd, a production of the Kimmel Foundation. For more information about the Kimmel Foundation, visit us at thekimmelfoundation.com or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter at The Kimmel FDN. Please share this podcast and join us again next week for another Word from the Herd.